You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, an MBTA board-certified criminal law specialist, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and renowned trial lawyer, Bill Powers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Law Talk with Bill Powers. Our latest series of conversations on Law Talk are directed towards lawyers, legal professionals, and law students. While I'm sure regular folks may be interested in the conversation, especially if they're thinking of getting into the profession, I want to dig a bit more deeply into personal issues, patterns, personalities, unspoken truths, realities, and the lifestyle of being a lawyer. With that, I'm honored to introduce my next guest, the Honorable Matthew, Matthew Osmond, sorry, Your Honor, uh, District Court Judge in the 26th Judicial District, and that's here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, judge Osmond uh, attended uh, school here in Charlotte at Charlotte Christian School, continued his education at UNC Chapel Hill, um, and received a BA in American History and a minor in Business Administration. Thereafter, he attended law school at the Regent University School of Law, graduating in 2001. Since that time, professionally, uh, Judge Osmond has um, served as a prosecutor, a defense attorney, staff attorney, and advised sailors and their families on domestic and civil issues. Uh, he worked in the United States Navy JAG program and was stationed in Yokosuka, Japan, uh, Rota, or Rota, Rota, Spain, and uh, Charleston, uh, South Carolina. He also worked for a time at Capitol Hill for Senator Phil Graham, a United States senator from, I believe, Texas. Uh, he was an economist who taught school at Texas A&M. He interned here in Charlotte for uh, the Honorable and now deceased uh, Judge uh, Brent McKnight, uh, who's a federal judge here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, thereafter, he uh, did some prosecutorial work in Monroe, North Carolina, in Union County, where I think he was the lead prosecutor. Uh, well, one of the ones, um, probably larger <laughs> cases in Union County, that was my recollection. My apologies if I'm incorrect on that. He was elected district court judge in 2010 and was re-elected in 2014. As a district court judge, he presides over criminal, civil, and family court matters. Uh, he is the lead judge for DWI treatment courts in Mecklenburg County. He's the lead criminal court judge in Mecklenburg County. He's a member of North Carolina's um, Governor's Statewide uh, Impaired Driving Task Force, a judicial member of the Mecklenburg County Bar's Continuing Legal Education. We call that CLE, Continuing Education Committee. And um, all around pretty experienced uh, 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 jurist in, in North Carolina. Uh, he's married, uh, he's husband, he's a prouder, uh, proud father of a daughter and two sons. Uh, greetings, Your Honor. Uh, thank you for having me. Hello. Thank, thank you. Well, hello to you and well, uh, thank you for uh, joining us. I'd like to kind of dig in uh, right off the bat, if that's okay, and ask um, you, Your Honor, um, one question I feel like I, I always want to ask every judge in, in, in their profession as well as lawyers uh, who are in the active practice of law, is how is it that you became a judge? How is it you became an attorney? Was it a life goal? Was it a reason you went to law school? Or was it something that developed over time as you practice and maybe matured uh, professionally? Well, going back to the decision to even go to law school, uh, in some ways I referred to myself as an accidental lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, I went through uh, college at Carolina and didn't really have a ton of direction for what I wanted to do. Made my way to D.C. to work for Senator Graham, which really was a fascinating time, mm -hmm. 97 to 98. 
Uh, Bill Clinton was the president. Mm -hmm. There were some interesting things happening in D.C. at that time, and so kind of had a front row seat. So some really interesting history. During my time there, I realized that my long-term future wasn't in D.C. again and didn't really have a, a good plan. And a friend of mine invited me to go down to visit Regent Law School. I sat in on one of their summer classes, and it was a contracts class. Contracts probably one of the more boring <laughs> and, and dry topics, and yet there was something about the class that just captured my interest. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved it. I loved the discussion of the cases, the, the way that we do in law school where you go through a case study. I loved the application of the facts, and I loved the fact that while there could be different interpretations of that, that the answer was somewhat straightforward, that there was still a degree of absolute truth to that. And I came away from that and knew that that's what I wanted to do. I interviewed for admission on the spot. That was three weeks before classes started. Hmm. Uh, I was admitted on the spot, went back up to DC, gave my two weeks notice and went back to Virginia Beach and started law school. I found myself sitting there on the first day surrounded by people who this had been their lifelong goal goal to go to life school, uh, to go to law school. Mm -hmm. and, and here, I was just happy to be here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it just went from there. But I just had this real love for the law that developed while I was in law school. But it was never something I had set out to do. I think it was the same regarding becoming a judge. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I had always thought that one day, that's something I would really like to do. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have a set timeline. Um, I didn't have a specific plan. And when the opportunity presented itself to run in 2010, it was long before I thought that opportunity would present itself. But given that opportunity, it was something that several people encouraged me to do and that I decided to go ahead and take a shot at at mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. I think, and thank you for sharing that because I'm one of those um, things kind of more developed over time as I think I personally um, maybe um, matured and um I love asking that question because the answers are always so interesting and different. I had a, a friend, um, a practicing attorney in Charlotte, now deceased, Joe Von Collis. And if you ever heard Joe's story about how uh, he ended up becoming a lawyer, it was amazing um, where he was in Times Square and ended up on a bus down to um, Georgia. And he, he had joined the military in a, in a time of <laughs> transition and need, we'll say. And it's one of those things that, you know, looking back, I have no doubt that this is what I was mm -hmm. supposed to do. Mm -hmm. It just took me a lot longer than other people to come to that realization that this was what I was meant for. I think that's okay. And I think especially for maybe college students or people in a career already that are starting to kind of wonder, hey, is this, is this really what I want to do? It's okay not to know or it's okay to change your mind. I think that sometimes when I see people in pre-anything programs, mm -hmm. pre-law, pre-med, pre-pharmacy, uh, pre-nursing, I, I I hope that they truly have, have that call and maybe have a little bit of experience beforehand because if not, mm -hmm. they've limited themselves pretty substantially at an early stage of their you know, college graduate career. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I'm a big fan of kind of broad-based liberal arts education mm -hmm. to kind of expose you to a lot of different things. And then from there, you can find out what you want to do and what appeals to you. Well, that's a great point because in your own curriculum vitae, you were a history major. And I went to um, a law school where uh, they took a lot of non-traditional students. I mean, one of my, one of my classmates was, uh, played French horn in Juilliard, if I, I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a point I always want to, I always ask lawyers and judges about, I'm going to see if you agree with me. Um, I think 
the development of the character of the lawyer and the person um, is actually more relevant to the day in that day out practice of law as opposed to someone's parents saying, well, he should go to law school. He, he's a, he loves to argue. And um, when I hear that, I quietly and nicely think to myself, I really hope that person doesn't uh, go to law school. <laughs> do, you have a, do you have a thought on that or has that ever kind of crossed your mind? I think that I, I hear that all the time. And the idea that, oh, you should go to law school because you love to argue does make me cringe a little bit as well. Lawyers do so much more than argue in court. There are so many lawyers who never step, side, uh, never step foot inside of a courtroom, uh, corporate, uh, real estate, and other attorneys. And so, you know, you don't have to focus solely on that. To me, the single biggest thing that lawyers need is critical thinking ability and critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think you develop through exposure to different disciplines, uh, academic and otherwise. But we need to be able to think critically mm -hmm. to apply uh, the law to the facts and vice versa. And if you can do that, then you can figure out the communication uh, skills and other things on the back end. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm interested in um, in, these, in this series on this podcast, because we sometimes go very granular on issues of law, I'm, I'm real interested in big picture perspective, especially, especially people like yourself who um, I think thinks of things more in a satellite um, a view of things. And I attended a law school, I went to Campbell, where we used the Socratic method, where we actually had to stand up uh, and, and, and answer questions. And... I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your experience in law school and what the legal education meant to you and what you learned or took from the process. Like, was it a books and testing experience or was it something more? Did you, did you see kind of the world open up to you or was it just you know business trip, get in and out? It was a fairly traditional law school experience. In many ways, we did, by and large, use the Socratic method mm -hmm. while teachers do vary and professors did vary from class to class. For the most part, they use the Socratic method. Uh, the student who was under fire didn't have to stand uh, in any of the classrooms I was in, mm -hmm. but they still were the one who was responsible for knowing the case and was taking most of the questions from the teacher at that mm -hmm. point. I think one of the things I valued the most about Regent was that in addition to the academic rigor was the emphasis as well on practical skills. There was a heavy emphasis on appellate advocacy. Mm -hmm. Um, and our teams did very well at competitions around the country. There was a heavy emphasis on trial skills and trial advocacy. And also we had an award-winning negotiations team. Mm. And I think that encouraging students and pushing students to do those different things, even if they never did appellate advocacy. I've never argued an appellate case. Mm -hmm. But I did a number of appellate advocacy competitions, and those helped hone my legal writing skills because you're preparing briefs. And also, you're uh, taking questions direct fire from multiple judges or people playing the role of a judge during an appellate advocacy competition. And that forces you to think on your feet, mm -hmm. uh, forces you to communicate well, and also to pivot. Mm -hmm. When an argument isn't going well, uh, good lawyers have the ability to recognize that and pivot to something else. Uh, less skilled lawyers uh, don't know how to get off of that argument mm -hmm. and will just keep arguing it until the bitter end. Yeah, that's that's one of my, and you've probably heard me say this in court before. My um, saying that if the horse dies, get off. Yes, um, meaning don't try to ride <laughs> the horse. It is either. dead, uh, <laughs> and if you keep riding it, the judge will just keep beating that horse, right, and then everybody right, loses. Right. But, but I think it was those things uh, beyond just the the classroom books testing that really appealed to me, and mm -hmm. that I really enjoyed about Regent. 
Uh, and as some, some of the areas where I excelled and that definitely helped me become a more effective litigator, mm-hmm. um, especially at my first job as a Navy JAG. Mm-hmm. Well, I, one of the things that I, 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 it interests me, but I also think it's a, a duty and responsibility is for people in the profession with some amount of pavement underneath their feet, meaning they've got a fair amount of practical experience, to share their thoughts about the developing of the law, development of the law and developing of attorneys, but also part of their legal education. And so I know I have some definite opinions about lawyers and law school and the profession itself. And I frankly would personally limit um, law school to two years in classroom study and maybe implement something like they do in medical school for interns or internships or residencies. Because uh, I personally think we're missing a little bit now from the old school way of educating lawyers through mentorships or tutelage. And there was a term where you would study under the bar, meaning you would work with an attorney as opposed to necessarily going to a law school and then you could just sit for the exam. Do you have any thoughts about that or suggestions? I don't think it'd be the worst idea for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. One, I think that by the time you get to your third year in law school, you're taking a lot of niche subjects mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that aren't even on the bar. Um, I can think of a few that Regent and other schools offer that they're just not tested on the bar. They may be some practical, real-world application, but when you look at the significant debt that many people occur for mm-hmm. that third year versus the value that you're adding uh, to your practice as a lawyer, I'm not sure that it's there. Right. So I think reducing law school to two years, one, I think it would substantially help people with regard to debt. And two, if it could provide that practical experience through internships, through working with attorneys, almost apprenticeships. Right, exactly. I mean, there was a time, remember, you could have basically apprenticed to the bar. Right, right, right. Uh, without even going to law school. And so if you could do that um, and get people that more practical experience, what I don't know what you would call them. They would almost be like para-attorneys, right, not quite para, right, para-legals, right. Uh, para-lawyer. I recall that from a movie, and I cannot remember uh, the reference. Um, maybe the Rainmaker. Hmm. Uh, but if you could do something like that, I think that would benefit right. the profession. Unfortunately, the the, the the law school setup in America, it, it's, it would be very hard, very hidebound, very hard to change mm-hmm. um, the, the law school system, the way it set up the tiered rankings. I think it'd be really hard to change that mm-hmm. and get the bar associations or the state bars who, who accredit to, to be accepting of that. But I do think that there will be substantial value for future attorneys. Right. And I, don't, and I think that falls in line with what you said before. Uh, and, and I don't know what they call in medical school, whether it's the internship or the residency, but I know that before you become a practicing doctor, you do a, a, a several month stint in maybe pediatrics or maybe you do geriatrics or maybe you work in the morgue or uh, whatever rotations they they, they do right, their rotations right, through right, different right. through different disciplines and then after that they pick their specialty after they've done mm-hmm. their rotations is how i understand it and i think that's a that's a great idea i think frankly your experience with the jag in that department has to i mean you you did it the way um i would try to encourage people from this point forward in fact one of my critiques of the current status of the practice of law is people graduating and throwing up a shingle. Now, uh, lawyers and judges know what that means, and maybe law schools mean are law students too. But basically, you just open your own practice. You you know you have your new newly minted um, diploma. You have your bar um, certification. You pass the bar, and you met all the moral requirements and ethical requirements. And then, bam, you're practicing law, and you can take in North Carolina. You can take any case you want. Basically, mm-hmm. now, there are a couple couple 
uh, subcategorizations of that, like you know, first degree murder case, they're not going to let you do it. But um, one of the other aspects, I, and, I, and I, pr- I appreciate your commentary on that, and, but I think people forget the humanity of the practice of law, mm. both in, um, for attorneys, but I, I'm real interested to hear about your thoughts on humanity of the bench. I mean, you are a, a living, breathing person, and while you represent a co-equal branch of the government, that's if you notice I'm referring to your honor as your honor, I think, because it's it, well, first you've earned it, but the honorific is related to the position of judge itself. Uh, but you're also a husband and a father and first a lawyer. And, and we still have that in North Carolina. You still have to be a lawyer to be a judge. There are times I worry that people are trying to change that up. But um, what was it like the first time you put on a robe? What were you thinking about? Were you nervous? Very. Uh, because there really is, in the Navy, we use lots of acronyms. And so there's no... It, it is OJT. It is on-the-job mm-hmm. training in every way. And so uh, in North Carolina, there are two sessions at the School of Government, which is in Chapel Hill, uh, for new judges. One of those sessions is in December before you take the bench, and mm-hmm. the other is in February or March after you've already been on the bench. So you've basically had, at most, one week of judicial or judge-specific training before you take the bench. And then the rest of it, you're kind of figuring out on the fly. Now, if you've been a practicing attorney for years, mm-hmm. you should know most of the uh, issues. But I think that it really takes a judge at least five years before you really fully find yourself, mm-hmm. your judicial philosophy, um, your demeanor, how you run a courtroom, and how you handle all of those things. And so the, I never forget the first day that I was uh, in trial court. I was in court in 4170 in Mecklenburg County. And we're doing some basic administrative matters, and all of a sudden it gets quiet. And I look up, and there are people sitting at the council tables, which in district court is not common. People don't sit at the at the at the table until it's time for a trial. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I look up, and we're about to start a trial. And mm-hmm. my clerk uh, Dana, who is known to many in Mecklenburg County District mm-hmm. Court, kind of looks over at me and kind of lets me know what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? And, and, and I was, but it was just this, okay, it's this is happening moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's that first time that someone lodges an objection mm-hmm. and everybody looks at you. Right. And you realize, oh, they're waiting for me to respond. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you just have this, okay, this is a really happening moment. And then I think once you get past those first couple of moments, you just get into the flow. Right. But you're still trying to find yourself. How mm-hmm. do I respond to this? Do mm-hmm. Am I going to permit speaking objections? Do Or do I just want to hear from the attorney that they have an objection? Uh, how much argument do I want? How mm-hmm. much uh, opening statements do I want, which are very uncommon in district? And, and many other things. And so you're, you may have thought about some of those things. And some of those things you should think about mm-hmm. before you're on the bench. So it's a little more seamless. But other things you don't think about. Uh, and it's just the way you're carrying yourself, the way that you're running the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Those are things that I really think develop over time and also from having observed other judges that you respect mm-hmm. and that you want to emulate. Hmm. That's interesting because I, I would I would think I personally would be uh, maybe a little bit behind the airplane, meaning that there's a lot of coming at me very quickly and I want to make sure I'm responding in a timely fashion. We call that drinking out of a fire hose right, in the Navy. Right, right, right. We had a judge in Charlotte years ago um, named Bill Scarborough, and, and Judge Scarborough was um, tried and trusted, uh, or tested, and fought, actually fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and really was a, a, a very interesting man personally but professionally. And after he retired, he practiced law for a while. 
And during trials where he was defense counsel, he would occasionally sustain <laughs> objections that had never been lodged because he was in such a history or, you know, he'd been on the bench for so darn long. So I, I think that's an interesting perspective. And, and that brings up another point regarding um, the perspective. As a judge um, and, and, you know, and as an attorney that appears before you, I can only imagine what you see in the courtroom. You literally sit in front of the courtroom in the front of the courtroom, above anyone else. And while the focus uh, for everyone in the courtroom is both literally and figuratively you and, and the court, a single person, uh, you are the sole person who can actually see everyone at the same time. Uh, you can see the activity in, in, in the commotion in the courtroom. Uh, you can see how people are acting, their reactions, their facial expressions, how they dress, how they sit, pretty much everything. What's that like? It's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you see a lot of different things, as you said, that people don't see because you're you're one of the very few people who's looking back toward the back of the courtroom. Almost mm -hmm. everyone else is looking toward the front. Mm -hmm. uh, the few times I have sat in the back of a courtroom just to get a sense for it, it's very interesting. One thing I've seen is that you really can't hear very much of mm -hmm. what's happening in front of the bar, in front of that area where you know normal people, uh, non-lawyers, and 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 officers and other things like that can't pass. And so I try to keep that in mind um, to make sure that everybody can hear me uh, when I'm when I'm on the bench. But it is interesting. You can just see different interactions, um, body language of people that are out in the audience or even at counsel table. Um, you just you can see things uh, that they may not think you can see. And you need to be careful not to draw conclusions from those things. But it does give you kind of that overall 30,000-foot perspective about what's happening. Hmm. Well, that, what a great point because I actually got called to a jury panel um, probably a couple of years ago now here in Charlotte. And um, there's always this assumption, oh, you're a practicing attorney, you'll never be called. And I personally have handled a fair number of jury trials. And I found myself sitting in the back and not being able to hear the questions. And when I am trying a case, I think we assume in the well of the bar that, you know, one of the standard questions is, you know, sir, um, you've heard me ask all the other, you know, people these questions. Do you have anything you want to add? And in large measure, it's because I think the courts don't want us to keep asking the same question. When the truth of the matter is, is that it's easy to kind of lose focus um, you're not on the spot. And then when they called my name and I actually went up into the chair and I've been in court at this point for 22 years or more, I was nervous and, and I actually knew the judge and I actually knew the prosecutor and the defense lawyer well, they're, you know, from my home jurisdiction. And I was nervous when they were asking me questions. So I think that's a great point. Well, and I think the same thing applies if you've ever been called as a witness. Mm -hmm. uh, during my legal career, I was called twice when I was in the Navy as a witness. Oh, really? And that was because there were some questions about some of the things that uh, the commanding officer had done mm -hmm. and the legality of some of the decisions. And that was so uncomfortable mm -hmm. for me as a lawyer to be on the stand. You're thinking of the questions that are being asked. You're thinking of the questions that should be asked. You're thinking, would I have asked it that way? Mm -hmm. And you're overthinking your answer. And I think it's helpful to keep that in mind when I see people get on the witness stand and flounder a little mm -hmm. bit. I know they're nervous. I know they're overthinking. I know that for many of them, they have a story they want to tell so badly, and they get frustrated when the questions don't allow them to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that perspective is beneficial as well 
um, to, to somewhat hopefully put the witnesses at ease and maybe assure them that they'll have a chance to tell their story, but also to know that when people get frustrated in courtrooms, um, to perhaps give them, especially non-lawyers, mm-hmm. to give them a little bit of latitude with that. Right. Because while, while the day-to-day operations of a courtroom are pretty routine to us, this might be the single most important thing that's happened to this person in a long time. Right. And we as legal professionals can get a little calloused about the day-to-day operations of our job and lose sight of that for this person who's in court, this is a really big deal. And so we need to treat them with the dignity and respect that they deserve and expect because this is, you know, their big thing today. Mm -hmm. Whereas for us, it's just our job. Sure. And there's a balance there because, and I personally, you you try to be empathetic, um, you know, people have busy, busy schedules. You see law officers coming to court. Maybe they haven't had been up all night, or they haven't had a chance to look at the their notes, and because um, they were dealing with a you know terrible murder, you know, two hours before. And frankly, it, you know, it is an adversarial system. If if we're trying to reach the truth, and as a defense attorney, my my goal and objective is to show inconsistencies in the story. Our job is to purposely try to get the person off the story. Um, but I think it be it can be done. Um, Nicely at, at, at times. It, so, it can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, especially when you're dealing with what I would call the professionals, mm-hmm. so the lawyers and law enforcement, the people that, that testify professionally, um, those times when I have had a chance to speak to officers after cases or in different trainings, I'll remind them that the attorney is doing their job mm-hmm. and that if you take this personally, um, which it's easy to do when you feel like your work's being attacked, then that's going to show and it's going to impact your credibility. Mm-hmm. Same thing for lawyers. When lawyers take cases personally and start to get emotional and worked up, um, that impacts their credibility as well. Mm-hmm. So it helps if everyone remembers that everyone is just trying to do their job um, and that recognizing that there are some times when, when personal issues are relevant, mm-hmm. but for the most part, everyone's just trying to do their jobs. It helps to keep things professional and, and less emotional while also allowing that latitude for civilian witnesses who, who aren't used to this and mm-hmm. they need a little bit of, a little bit of freedom to express themselves. That's actually a good transition for my next kind of series of questions for you. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in lawyer is the idea of a moral compass. Uh, if you borrow the idea um, from natural law theory or perhaps Thomas Aquinas or Aquinas, uh, where one would argue that intrinsically we know in our, in our innermost beings, What's right and wrong? And my question to you is, do you think being a lawyer is merely a business or something else? Should it be more? Are there aspects of serving the community? Now, I know you know that, and I know that, but maybe a law student doesn't understand how important that is to being a legal professional. Well, I think one way to answer that question is to look back at the history of our country. And if I recall correctly, John Adams Mm-hmm. who defended British soldiers mm-hmm. uh, who were accused of killing Americans during the uh, Boston Massacre, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most unpopular defenses of all time. And yet he recognized that everyone is entitled to and deserves a defense, no matter how heinous or unpopular the crime. And mm-hmm. I think that as lawyers, we often have to take on unpopular causes Granted, we are paid for that, but take on unpopular causes because, again, one of the hallmarks of this society is that everyone is entitled to representation. So there is a service element to that because if everybody turned down unpopular cases, then some people would never have representation and mm-hmm. what kind of society would we be? But I do think that you know through pro bono work, which is lawyers doing work for free, 
and other opportunities. There are ways to serve. And so while people in banking industry or other industries might do certain volunteer work relevant to what they do, uh, for lawyers, that might mean representing people who can't afford to be represented or who are in a really bad in a really bad spot. So I do think that there is a service component um, to any profession, um, and but for lawyers specifically called toward providing legal representation and occasionally taking up unpopular causes. Sure. And you've always been very generous with your time. Um, I regularly see you speaking or at continuing legal educations, going to schools, um, and you're active in the legal community. Why is that? Is that is that fall in line with what you're saying? Is that part of your job as being a judge? I think so. I think judges have a responsibility to help prov- uh, improve the legal profession. For me, I want to see the practice of law. And when I say the practice of law, I mean the quality of uh, lawyering mm-hmm. and workmanship that I see in a courtroom. I want to see that continue to improve. And I know that I was mentored when I was a young attorney by senior attorneys. And I know that new attorneys come into our system all the time and they need mentoring and they need to hear from the people who are making decisions for litigators. They need to hear from judges mm-hmm. about the things we see, the things that lawyers do well, and mm-hmm. the things that they can improve on. Um, I believe a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. And so if everyone is practicing at a high level, it encourages everyone. But it only takes a few attorneys who are not doing well. Um, look, lawyers have a negative reputation in a lot of mm-hmm. society where lawyers are the butt of a lot of jokes. And it only takes a couple lawyers in the news doing the wrong thing and not doing it well to kind of tar us with that same brush. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that by encouraging and helping lawyers, young lawyers especially, improve their practice, I think it benefits the legal profession as a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, and you've, again, kind of drawn me to my next question because personally I I try to keep, and I, you know, try to keep even our conversation in a positive note. Are Are there things that you think make lawyers better in court? I know I personally regularly self-assess. Um, and I practice law long enough now to be able to say I could have done that better or perhaps more importantly, I'm sorry. Um, I, I know my strengths, but I also recognize my strengths are oftentimes my weaknesses. I can be overly competitive. Um, I can take a case, uh, so seriously that you can, you can, um, focus on the on the leaves and the branches of the tree and miss the forest for the trees. And there are also times where I know things that others don't. And, you know, from a moral compass standpoint, when I know something is, let's say, being not accurately described um, after someone puts their, their left hand in the Bible and raises their right hand or, or, or affirms whatever they want to do, that offends me and I have to be careful to step back. And I... I have numerous times called up um, prosecutors, judges, law enforcement officers. I try not to make it too much of a habit, but I've said, I'm sorry, I could have been nicer to you or, um, you know, I wasn't having a good day. So what, 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 I mean, what do you think about, about, about that encouraging the lawyers? Is it a matter of, and, and this may be part of the education process where you say, get a mentor or knock on someone's door and ask some questions. I don't have any problem horse collaring a lawyer, I think, has been acting, um, in a tough fashion in court and saying, come here, let me, let me talk, let me take you a cup of coffee and let's chat a little bit. I think having a mentor is, is key. If an attorney is not able to get into a firm uh, that has experienced lawyers, um, there are still ways through the bar to seek out other attorneys who have mm-hmm. been there and can encourage you. I have called up experienced attorneys to the bench and asked them to reach out 
mm-hmm. to another attorney because that person might need some guidance and some mentoring that might be better received from a fellow member of the bar rather than uh, a judge. Um, when it comes to you know ways to improve practice, I think it's it's really true that for many for many of us, our our best traits and our strengths are sometimes our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. If you're someone who is extremely thorough and prepared, um, sometimes you don't know, as you said, when to get off that horse and you just, you drill down so far, put such a fine point on it that you've basically, you've gone too far Mm -hmm. and you've lost the effectiveness. And Mm -hmm. so how do I pull myself back as an example? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so so that um, being professional and respectful, I think is critical. If you give respect, you will get respect. Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 being trustworthy. Right. I I am a naturally trusting person. Mm-hmm. I will. Whereas some people say you have to earn trust out of the gate. For me, I'm more likely to trust from the beginning. But once that trust is gone, trust mm-hmm. is trust is really hard to get back for me and, and a lot of people. But I'm going to give you room to do to to get that. Um, I'm going to give you room, you know, to earn that back. But it's going to take a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you were talking about kind of getting frustrated in court and things like that. And, and that's an, it's an interesting issue mm-hmm. that I see. And I do it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of there's two things that I think are a big part of my judicial philosophy and kind of who I am. Um, and I would refer to them as the razors. So you have Occam's razor, mm-hmm. which says uh, and paraphrase that all things being equal, the simplest answer is the most likely. Mm-hmm. And the second will be Hanlon's razor. Uh, which was popularized by Lane Williamson in a bar letter mm-hmm. uh, sometime last year, Hanlon's Razor, that basically says um, that when in doubt, um, it's easier to ascribe uh, the actions of someone uh, to stupidity rather than maliciousness. Mm-hmm. And so while there are people that come into our courtrooms who flat out lie, mm-hmm. who ha- are, are there with no good, there are other times that people are not as bright, not as intelligent, don't understand the questions mm-hmm. and need to be given room to explain themselves. Uh, and so I, I look at a lot of things through those lenses. Um, it's a lot easier for me to think that this attorney just, they didn't know better mm-hmm. and they're learning than that they set, sat out to come or set out to come into court and deceive me. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's, maybe that's a little Pollyanna, but mm-hmm. I'd rather give them the benefit of the doubt that they just didn't know better. Um, and stupidity is a strong word, so maybe right. it's ignorance. Right. Uh, maybe they just didn't know better. And, and again, right. when you're coming up with complicated conspiracy theories, it's often the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible that all these amazing factors came together, or is it just the simpler answer, which is that so-and-so did this thing right. that they're accused of doing or not, or that this witness who's saying something happened, but it was an exceptionally complicated way of getting there. Right. Or it's the simpler answer. Right. So those two, those two razors, those two philosophies have a lot of impact on the way that I view the things that happen in a courtroom. And, of course, then there's Gillette razor, which means don't forget <laughs> to shave the court. And um, I said it in jest, but take care of yourself. Um, and I, I find my mental health and my ability to be a more effective advocate is related to what I've done in the morning and getting up and working out or eating you know, a good breakfast or trying to get enough sleep. And so I, I say it in jest, but there is an aspect of, of that. Right. And there's, uh, a, and there's a couple different parts of that, too, from us. Mm-hmm. You know, for us, uh, two parts of it, I'd say. One is getting honest feedback is 
really hard as a judge. Mm-hmm. I used to joke that you put the robe on and suddenly you lost 10 pounds. Your jokes mm-hmm. are hilarious mm-hmm. and your hair looks great because the lawyers in front of you, they don't want to tell you what they really think. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they want to curry favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting meaningful feedback so that you can improve your practice. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we derisively refer sometimes to something called black robe disease or mm-hmm. robitis. Mm-hmm. Judges who kind of go off the rails, who can't be told anything. And I don't want to be those judge, that judge. So I try to find people who I can trust, who I know aren't trying to curry favor, but can give meaningful feedback mm-hmm. on court performance. And the other part of that is personal, mm-hmm. taking time, exercising when I have the time, just getting away. Uh, trying not to think about work and difficult cases, which is very, very, very mm-hmm. difficult for me. I have a hard time compartmentalizing. So trying to do that um, and trying to just take care of my mental health, mm-hmm. um, given the issues I see is a challenge, but is important. Well, I want to um, move to another, and I want to thank you for your gift of time. You've been very generous with us. And um, it's kind of something new I'm starting with. And if you've ever seen Inside the Actor Studio with uh, James Lipton, he borrowed something from uh, Bernard. Um, and called the Bouillon de Culture, who borrowed something from Marcel Proust, um, who was a um, late 19th century uh, French novelist. So these are just th- some fun questions that um, are intended to be fun and maybe just show some insight and humanity of who we are. And, um, and, and you can answer these personally, professionally, any way you want. Um, and, and the first one, most obvious one, I think, is if you weren't in the legal profession, what profession would have otherwise interested you? I would have loved to have done something with sports. Really? I would never dream to have been an athlete. Mm-hmm. But to be engaged in sports in some way, I don't know, broadcasting, but some sort of management, something to that effect. I just really enjoy sports, and so I think that being involved with something to that effect would have been enjoyable. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and if not, mm-hmm. uh, maybe some sort of food and travel writer, um, because I really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the Navy really scratched that itch a lot, having lived all over the world. So sure. that would be that'd be pretty fun too. Sure, uh, I'm big into etymology of words and things like that, and I I have I have I'm, I'm really want to figure out which way people are thinking about this. So I'm going to give you a series of words, and then I'll give you an A or a B option. Okay. Okay. Whereas, arguendo, nunc pro tunc. Valenting non-fit injuria, legal lingo, tradition and history, or pedantic and loquacious? Tradition and history. So I kind of like it. I don't know why. I know a lot of lawyers don't, but that, that there's a very strong opinion amongst lawyers about simplifying uh, things and not using that language, and sometimes just quicker. Um, what's your favorite word, legal or civilian? Legal. Um, well, I meant, I meant uh, and I'm, I'm, that was a poorly, oh, okay. a poorly, poorly <laughs> asked question. <laughs> yes. I would sustain that objection uh, if counsel made it, that the question was, I'd probably sui sponte, right. uh, which is another traditional right. history legal word. Mm-hmm. So my favorite word, mm-hmm. just in general, Oh man, I wish I had a chance to think about that one before because I know that there I, are a yeah. few words that I'll 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 find a favorite word and then use it for a little while, a fifty cent word, right. and then and then overuse it. So I know there are a couple, and I'm just completely drawing a, right. a blank right now. Mine is two. It'd probably be ice cream. So um, <laughs> um, some of the the Proustian questions uh, he asks, um, 
you know, he asked about, you know, what's your favorite color and things like that. But is there a, is there a historical figure now he used that you most despise, but I'm more interested in, in historical people, uh, figures that people tend to admire. And, it, it, you know, there, it could be spiritual or anything like that. But I, I'm from, from an intellectual standpoint, is there a, a world leader like Churchill or Franklin or, or Lincoln or... You mentioned John Adams before. So. I mean, I have. I was a student of history. Right, right. Uh, but I don't often think about things that way. You know, when people say, well, could I have dinner with four historical figures dead alive, mm. things of that nature, I never really have a good answer. Right. Because I'm not one who's big into heroes for myself. Mm-hmm. There aren't people who, celebrities and the like, who I'd follow all over myself to meet. I just think they're regular people. So... Um, I probably would harken back to uh, World War II uh, heroes and the like, such as Eisenhower. Right. Um, I think he would be really interesting to meet. Um, and some of the others who were instrumental in the American victory in, in Europe and, and in the Pacific, I think it'd be really interesting to get a sense for how they made some of the decisions they made, knowing that the men under their command were going to die. Right. Uh, and, and how they came to those decisions, um, knowing that probably the, uh, some of those decisions lived with them and haunted them for a long time. Hmm. Um, the decisions I make certainly don't result in people dying, but there are lasting consequences. And we hmm. do think about those decisions. And so I think there could be some interesting parallels between decision making with consequences and hearing how they um, how they dealt with that in their life. Right. I think the follow-up on that one, more um, my wife Sam and I were asking one another this question. Would you rather meet your great-great-grandparents or your great-great-grandchildren? I would probably rather meet my great-great-grandparents. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I had two great-grandparents up until I was 18. Mm-hmm. So I I had uh, a number of grandparents far in excess of what most people have. Mm-hmm. To so to have gone one generation back from them, I think would have been really neat. Mm-hmm. Do you have a motto or something that you 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 think to yourself? I mean, um, you know, my personal one is Essequam Vidiri. So I'm I'm joking. That's the North Carolina <laughs> motto. But is there a, a you I, and I know I didn't prepare you for any of these questions. But is there a favorite saying or is there a motto or something that you 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 think on um, regularly? I'm sure my wife would probably tell you there is, and something I say <laughs> often. But off the top of my head, no. Okay. okay. Um, I'm not much of a mantra motto person. Right. Um, well, that that's an answer in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Your Honor, as a as a judge. We, we have talked about, spent a fair amount of time talking about experiences and backgrounds. And, um, you know, one of the arguments we make with juries or in selection of juries, we don't, we're, the reason we're taking you is we want your life experience. We want your background. Um, and that's, you know, the, the common person's perspective in life. And most notably, you started your legal career in the Navy, uh, in the Navy JAG program. Uh, and I think that stands for Judge Advocate General. Did I get that correct? Correct. And that normally requires you to handle, to my understanding, a lot of different legal matters. I've I've always said the best attorneys in the courtroom would be able to sit at either table, and I truly uh, mean that. I personally would have no problem prosecuting uh, cases. Um, and I know you prosecute matters uh, for the state, um, and uh, I think you probably did some defense work 
as well in the Navy, maybe wrote, wrote some wills or anything. What, I mean, tell me, if, tell me about JAG and what that experience was like, because I think a lot of law students would benefit from that. Sure. Uh, and, and when people talk about my background and experience, they often focus on being a prosecutor in Union County. Right. They often focus on my prosecution work uh, when I was in the Navy. And I rarely get a chance to talk about my work as a defense attorney, mm-hmm. um, which is probably some of the most meaningful work. Um, as a quick overview, my first two years, I was a prosecutor stationed in Japan, which was a really interesting time. Um, there are a number of young sailors stationed over mm-hmm. there who oftentimes made mistakes, oftentimes involving drugs and alcohol. And so we had a number of interesting legal issues, both on the base and off, and having to work through our relationship with the Japanese government and how we're going to handle that. Mm-hmm. From there, I went to Spain where I was a staff attorney, and so I was advising on legal issues on the base. Um, I was advising the commanding officer for the base, uh, again, about discipline issues um, and also international issues related to the status of forces agreement um, and our relationship with the Spanish government, uh, which was very different from our relationship with the Japanese government. Um, When you tend to beat someone in a war, you tend to have a bit more power when it comes to making the rules. And so uh, in, in Japan, we owned that land. Mm -hmm. In Spain, we were tenants. Hmm. And so we uh, had to be much more um, respectful of, of, uh, and and go about, not that we weren't respectful of the Japanese government, we had Mm -hmm. a great relationship, but just we had to operate a little differently in Spain than we did in Japan because of the history going back to what brought us there in the first place. And then from there, I went on to Charleston where I was the officer in charge, which means the head officer of the legal office there. Uh, and Charleston is where the Naval Nuclear Power Training Command is. Hmm. So you had a very bunch of very bright, very tech-savvy young men and women who tended to commit crimes that were consistent with their youth, um, their intelligence, and their computer savvy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during the time I was in Charleston, we also, as a legal service office, we did lots of wills on people who were deploying powers of attorneys. Gave some civil law advice, mm-hmm. but we're very limited in what we could do because we couldn't represent out in state court. So we could give some general advice about family law matters and the like, but then we had to push them, you know, to handle those things on their own or get a, get a civilian attorney if it was a state court matter. Um, but my time as a defense attorney um, when I was in Charleston really helped to shape me as a lawyer because I was a prosecutor. And then I was a defense attorney. And then when I came, got out of the Navy and went to Union County, I was a prosecutor again. And I really feel like my second time around as a prosecutor had a much different perspective. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of baby prosecutors, as we call them, baby ADAs, um, the world is so black and white mm-hmm. and very little shades of gray. Mm-hmm. We tend to be very idealistic. And having done that defense tour and then come back into the prosecution world, I think I was able to see that scale, the shades of gray in the middle as well as when defense attorneys were telling me things that were coming from their clients, I had a much better sense of what was legitimate, what was true, what was going on with their client mm-hmm. and taking that into account. So yes, I mean, I've handled some really serious defense uh, cases. I've had to sit across from sailors uh, and Marines and tell them that the maximum punishment if they're convicted is death. Oh Lord. Because in the military, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ, there are several offenses that are still capital on the books mm-hmm. uh, beyond homicide, certain sexual assaults, uh, and other things like that that still carry a death penalty. Now, no one has been executed in the military for years and years and years and years. But you know, as a defense attorney, mm-hmm. that you still have to advise your client of the maximum punishment mm-hmm. or you are committing malpractice. Mm-hmm. And so having to tell a 22, 23-year-old sailor that the maximum punishment if they're convicted of this sexual assault 
is death is not easy. Mm. Uh, but I think is an important part of my history because I've had to have those conversations with young clients mm-hmm. about the potential consequences of their action. Um, some of my biggest wins in a courtroom, uh, my most memorable wins, and some of my most memorable losses mm-hmm. have been on the defense side because of the client you have sitting next to you. Now, as a prosecutor, you're still advocating very hard for the state, but are you also advocating for that victim mm-hmm. and that victim's family? But the relationship you develop with a defense client tends to be a little more close, a little bit more emotional, and you have to be careful with that, Mm -hmm. not to get too emotionally invested in the case. That's very hard. But because of that, the wins and the losses, I think you tend to feel a lot more strongly on the defense side than you do on the prosecution Mm -hmm. side. At least I did. Yeah. Well, here all these years, I've been thinking the lash was the uh, most severe punishment in the Navy or maybe keel hauling, but... um, Trying to add some levity. That is, I've actually. Uh, <laughs> they don't do that anymore. Uh, there may be some times when it's justified, but we don't do that anymore in the Navy. Um, it brings up another point, and I, I really want to hear what you think about this, um, particularly because of your work um, in the um, drug courts and being the the lead, or um, and I apologize if I'm using the wrong term, criminal judge in Charlotte. Um, I'm a defense lawyer, and people regularly assume I'm I'm, I'm a liberal kind of person. In fact, when I'm actually quite conservative, uh, maybe a progressive libertarian is what I like to joke around with. But the point is I get tired, um, and there are days I'm just done with some excuses. Um, I regularly tell prosecutors, you don't realize how much I've modulated the message. Uh, Culturally, I think there has been a major transition from um, acceptance of responsibility and just an attitudinal shift for I have clients regularly think that they're in control and I've done blog posts on this, like, you know, how is court scheduled in North Carolina and who's actually in control and you know, this ubiquity of of the devices and things like that. And then on other days I see the kindness um, and the human heart. And I always want to make sure that I don't forget that this, you know, this is a real person with real life and real world concerns and so I have to just guess that, you know, in working in the drug court in Charlotte, um, it, it has to be in large measure a thankless job. Um, it, it's not a, uh, a sexy position. It's not something where it get, garners a lot of attention. It doesn't sell in newspapers like the latest um, beginning of a charge. But as far as changing lives and really making a difference, I have to think that it's one of the most important things we do. But as a judge... Um, you know, tell me about your experiences there as, as you're able and does the good outweigh the bad? Um, how do you mention taking it home with you and mm-hmm. how do you, you know, if you're, if you're caring for an ill person and you're living it in your face 24 hours a day, there have to be periods of separation and, and I won't go into great detail, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like you have a very fair understanding of that more than most even as a judge, how do you deal? how do you deal with that? Well, first, compassion fatigue is real. Mm -hmm. When you hear the same stories over and over again, when you're dealing with some of the same issues over and over again, it's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, In probation court, if the first person comes up and this is their story and their reason for why something happened, and then somebody comes up three hours later and they're the 10th person with the same story, you have to be very careful not to be calloused 
Because maybe that last person, it's actually legitimate. Right. But you've heard that same story so many times. Right. It's easy to become jaded. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be really guard yourself against that. But the compassion fatigue is legitimate. In my work in the DWI treatment court, which I think is really valuable, um, but it, it, it is hard because you are dealing with really difficult issues involving addiction mm-hmm. and some behaviors you're trying to change and people who don't want to change. That's really difficult. Uh, I, I struggle not to internalize those uh, and mm-hmm. not to get burned out. Um, probably, but the, the two most mean, the, the two times of most meaningful work I think I've had it as a judge where I think I've had the greatest impact has been in DWI treatment court mm-hmm. and also was during my two years as a family court judge. Mm-hmm. Now, in criminal court, there are consequences to what we do. If you're convicted of a marijuana possession, if you're convicted of a DWI, there are lasting, long-term, sometimes lifetime consequences to that. But I would suggest to you, and others would agree, that the long-term consequences of who is raising these children, mm-hmm. of custody and other matters, especially when there are serious issues going on in that family, the long-term consequences of those are arguably more significant and are the ones that stay with me more. I'm far more mm-hmm. likely to mm-hmm. take a decision like that home and think on the decision I've made in a custody case than I am in a criminal matter, both from my experience because I have more experience on one side than the other. But secondly, because you just so desperately, while you want to get everything right, Mm -hmm. you so desperately want to get decisions involving kids right. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that I think tend to stick with us uh, judges longer. I know it does for me. Sure. Wow. And, and, you know, we do a fair amount of uh, 50B work, which is the domestic violence um, protective order, restraining order, sometimes 50C depending on if there's relations, and when you do family law and you have some experience with it, there's an interaction between those two courts, and one of the key questions oftentimes is not just the danger to the person that's brought the action, but the future danger and the trauma caused to the children, and I, I, I would think that'd be hard not to internalize because um, there isn't, you know, when you open up the court file, there isn't an envelope inside that opens up and says, you know, who would be the best person to provide the primary custody or care for this child? And you open up and it says this person. Right. And judges have a tremendous amount of discretion right. in family court when it comes to making those decisions. As long as you can justify your decision with provable facts, mm-hmm. uh, then the judges can do a lot of different things. And on the one hand, that's freeing because mm-hmm. it, sometimes it means there isn't a right answer. There's just a range of acceptable answers. Right. But other times, I think that's a great weight. Right. Uh, that there may not be one quote unquote right decision. Um, to me, that's a heavy burden to bear mm-hmm. um, because, as someone who likes to get things right, knowing that there may not be one right um, is, is hard. I tend to believe I'm a believer in absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there really are two people in this world people who believe in absolute truth. People who believe in absolute truth, mm-hmm. uh, believing that there is no absolute truth is in itself an absolute. So I believe that everybody believes in an absolute of one form or another. And as someone who believes in absolute truth, trying to find that one right answer when sometimes there may not be one right answer can be challenging. Mm-hmm. Which kind of cross-references our prior reference to natural law theory and Aquinas, which we very much was into that theory. Some some come natural and some comes inspired. One last question I'll, and I'll let you go. Because uh, you mentioned the JAG and your experience in criminal and, and and civil work. I have to think as being a father of three and being married 
now that we've kind of interjected this idea of um, trying to be empathetic to clients, that's that has to uh, affect things. I mean, I, I'm glad when I know a judge has had some personal experience with that. Not that you can always draw and project your own personal experiences to things, but is there an aspect of that from the bench? For me, yes. Now, mm-hmm. we have had some wonderful mm-hmm. current and past uh, very talented, skilled judges who were great family court judges who may not have had children. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you can have a great criminal court judge who's never been a criminal, has never been charged with a crime. <laughs> right, so, right, right. so you don't have to have sat in that person's seat to, to be good at that. And we've had people demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. For me, though, my, my, my real life experience certainly impacts you know, my perspective from the bench, my time with my three children. Um, one of whom has some pretty significant special needs, certainly impacts the way that I receive evidence from parents, especially those mm-hmm. parents who also have challenging children. Um, and, and you can view that through that lens and you can kind of tell what has the ring of truth and, and kind of what doesn't. Mm-hmm. I think, and that was a great point. I think my question to you is more when we're, we're trying to help other lawyers or younger law students to realize that their life experiences are important to their practice and therefore, I encourage them to get as much experience in multiple different areas, understanding that no one's going to be an expert in any area. So where, you know, like we said, had jurists that have had families and kids and haven't and are, are excellent, but may have had a ton of experience in, in the JAG. I guess the key takeaway that I was trying to draw from that was when you graduate from law school, do your best to try a lot of different things. Maybe maybe find a tutor or, or, or a mentor or, or join a JAG where you, you're, you're forced to, you know, fire hose information. I think it makes you a better person and a better lawyer. And, and, and be who you are. Don't mm-hmm. forget your experiences. Uh, the North Carolina jury instructions talk about how jurors can draw on their life experiences, right. their common sense. They don't have to leave everything they know at the door. And for judges, it's the same way. When judges are finding facts... We have our histories. We mm-hmm. have our experiences. Mm-hmm. Now, it's important to set aside biases, right. imply it biases, uh, I'm sorry, implicit biases mm-hmm. and the like. It's important to recognize and set those aside. But I can't completely divest myself of my life experiences. Mm-hmm. And it's going to affect the way that I view cases and the way that I receive evidence. And that's going to be the way for anyone. Our experiences affect the way that we perceive the world. And I think it's important for attorneys to recognize that in us and also for attorneys to use their experience as a strength mm-hmm. when they're uh, practicing and presenting evidence. Well, and our system is imperfect by the fact that it's it's run and judged by juries and judges by humans. And it'd be better to recognize our strengths and weaknesses, than, and it's not always perfect. Um, I still think it's the best legal system in the world myself, but um, it's not always perfect. And like good sausage, it isn't always pretty watching it being made. But so. hopefully it tastes pretty good in the end and we get, and we get the right result. Right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for answering that. I know that's a, uh, a somewhat personal question, but I, I, do, I do very much appreciate it. Thank you. Well, again, I want to uh, thank you, Your Honor, for joining us on uh, Law Talk with Bill Powers. It's been very helpful and enlightening to me. I hope it's been not too uh, pressing uh, on you. I would encourage our listeners, if you have questions or if you'd like to hear other people speak, uh, shoot me an email, and the materials are in our, our notes uh, that attach to this podcast. And uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. A lot of fun. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions on your time. Ready to discuss your matter now? Call 704-342-HELP for your free and totally confidential consultation. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented on this podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decisions. Thanks for listening.